You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I am Carlos Noche, and I'm joined by amazing podcast partner, Lisa Schneer. Say hi, Lisa. Hi, everyone. All right, folks, for today's topic, we're going to talk about revenue operations. So many companies these days are trying to improve their effectiveness, especially as they prepare for more difficult economic times ahead. I would like to have a conversation with our great guest about what are some of the best recommended practices out there and the ones that are really based on proven data, not just assumptions. And the guest we have to help us out with this topic today is Jeremy Donovan, author of five books, including the international public speaking bestseller, How to Deliver a TED Talk, as well as Predictable Prospecting and a few others. LinkedIn rock star with over 40,000 followers. Follow him on LinkedIn. And also currently the executive vice president of sales and customer success at Insight Partners. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time today and welcome to the show. Lisa and Carlos, thanks for having me. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right. So here's our typical get the conversation started because we want to know Jeremy a little bit better. What might be something that you're really passionate about that those that only know you through business might be surprised to really know about? I guess like many people, I have a bunch of hobbies and those hobbies accelerated, I think, during COVID as I had more time that I wasn't spending on commuting into New York City. So a couple of more unusual hobbies. One is archery. I've always had an interest in it, but I got super into it, got my own uh, Olympic recurve bow and did a decent amount of archery. So I'd sort of do that until I caused myself a repetitive stress injury. I take a break, I do it again. Can't seem to stop with the punishment. And then the other one that people who know me at work also do know this, I've become a pretty obsessed fly fisher person. And most, if the weather is not horrendous, I am almost certainly standing in a river every weekend. That's awesome. So I also love fly fishing, although I don't get to do it enough. In fact, Jeremy, I invite you down to North Georgia because this is how I used to get my fishing in. I live on a trophy creek with some 22, 24-inch rainbows and browns. So come on down to North Georgia. I'll take you fly fishing. It gets me out of the house and stops me from working. So I'd love for that to happen. I'm going to take you up on that because as people who fly fish know, it gets tough in the wintertime. You got to find a place to go where there is not too horrendous. Yes. So tell us a little bit more about your story, right? What was your journey that got you to this incredible success that you have today? Well, yeah, I mean, and I guess it's for others to judge whether it's an incredible success or not. But I think I had a pretty non, I think non-traditional journey. I think about journeys in two ways. One is like just traditional promotion path, right? Like a lot of people who are in senior rev ops functions or CROs, senior sales functions work their way up, right? From they were an SDR, they were an AE, and maybe SMB, they went mid-market, they went enterprise, right? Then they went the management track. So I was definitely not that path. I sometimes joke that I'm the biggest fraud in sales because the last thing I sold, I think, was mangoes or baseball cards when I was a kid. <laughs> I was always hustling, but I never carried a bag as a B2B salesperson. I've tried to make up for that by being an intense learner. And I'll get back to that in a second. But yeah, the journey was more of a stair-step thing where I refer to it as like add a word, remove a word. So I was a semiconductor engineer originally. I dropped engineer and became a semiconductor analyst. I was also doing a little bit of product development. So I dropped the analyst piece and went into product development, then product, dropped development, product management, dropped management, product marketing, dropped product, corporate marketing, 
And then I added sales on. So I actually was briefly a CRO at one point. But I realized in the course of that journey that I really enjoy the strategy aspect. And one of the CROs I once worked for, Sean Murray, who's amazing CRO now over at Greenhouse, he said, hey, Jeremy, your job is to work on the business. My job is to work in the business. I really, really enjoy working for him. And I enjoyed that guidance. So it allowed me to think, right, 6, 12, 18 months out, planning and strategy for the organization. And obviously, he did plenty of that too. But he was much more working on what was going on that quarter, next quarter, making sure he was advancing some of the biggest deals, making sure that he was coaching and motivating the team. Amazing. And so following that journey and connecting it to the topic we have today, so revenue operations. Now, I think a lot of our listeners would know what we mean by that. However, could you give us a few examples of the processes that would fall under revenue operations in your definition? Yeah, I mean, I think at the highest level, you can split these things into sales operations, marketing operations, and CS operations. Those things are not always combined. I mean, I would say more often than not, I feel I probably could look at some data. They're not actually combined. They're sort of virtually combined. And a lot of times people who are in sales operations these days refer to themselves as revenue operations. That was certainly my evolution before I started to get comfortable with more and more pieces of that full stack. So within each of those, you can double click, right? And I think for me, as I think about the sort of functions within revenue operations, absolutely comp and quota sits in there, territory and segmentation sits in there, deal desk typically sits in there, and then analytics forecasting, right, also sits in there. And then there are other pieces that may be in there, right? CS ops frequently, some of the marketing ops pieces. Uh, Enablement may roll into revenue operations as well. Sometimes, and one of the teams I led, started and led was a sales engineering team. And that sometimes rolls in. So like almost any non-quota bearing function in theory could roll into revenue operations. But there's no one definition, right? So every company is a bit of its own special snowflake in terms of how they structure things. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. And excellent. So someone with your career and background, not to mention your MBA in econometrics and statistics, data is clearly near and dear to your heart. (laughs) So (laughs) very much so. Yeah, very much so. The engineer in me has never gone away. I, I was coding last night, for example, and I'm pushing 50 years old. So I don't know if that's... That's awesome. I sometimes joke it's not the best use of time, but actually I think it is. I think it's a good use of time because I'm able to get a lot of leverage out of doing that. There's something almost meditative about it if you're in the groove, right? It's I'm not a coder, but I know a lot of them have worked with a lot of them and I know that that's the zone that you get in, right? It totally is. Yeah, it is a very flow state for me. Funny side story about the career journey is... When I graduated college, I had the option to go into a sort of traditional semiconductor engineering role or to go work for a software company. And the reason I didn't go work for the software company was because at the time when I would code all day, I would dream and code. And for some people, maybe that's a good dream. But for me, it was a nightmare. So they were really nightmarish dreams. So I couldn't do it because I wanted to protect my sleeping life. Right. Like no work could never end it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Constant coding. Wow, I can definitely see that being a challenge, yeah. So we talked about the topic of the day, revenue operations, processes, and having them be data-driven. So what are some of those processes that you commonly recommend because of their data-driven nature? Yeah, so I mean, let's get into kind of how I approach this. So I was at one of Insight Partners Portfolio Company Sales Law for four years before I joined here about 11 months ago. And Everywhere I've gone, I've always tried to find data in order to be able to 
understand what to do, right? I really don't, I have a hard time believing things until I see statistically significant data behind that, just given my background. And SalesLoft, I had the luxury of having access to over a billion, billion with a B, interactions between sellers and their customers and their prospects. So I could interrogate when is the best time to call? When's the best time to email? What should your subject line be? How should you greet people? What should the body look like? How do you sign off? Just anything you could dream of, we could test using that data. And when I moved over to Insight, I no longer had access to that data. And I felt for a couple of months, wow, I really need to get my foundation in something that I'm going to be now advising our portfolio companies on how to grow and scale faster. I can't just make this stuff up. I need to have a foundation. So I looked around and there's a lot of great, if you Google revenue maturity assessment or sales maturity assessment or marketing maturity assessment, like you'll find a bunch of stuff. And I mentioned, although I consider myself like a sales fraud in some ways, I'm all about learning, right? So I kind of read tons and tons of stuff. I culled together everything I could find. I feel I'm more of a curator than a creator. There are some things I create, but I'm probably 80% curator, 20% creator, and pulled together all these questions about how to assess revenue maturity. And then out of that, built a, I don't know, 60-ish question survey that I sent out to RevOps leaders in our portfolio, but also outside, just people I've built relationships over time and, and was fortunate enough to have 122 of them come back. And the thing takes about 10 minutes to answer. But out of that, we're able to say, what is it? And we not only, by the way, asked them what they're doing, we also had a very good sense of how they were performing so that we could basically tie practices to outcomes and know which things were best practice as opposed to general practice. And there's so many debates in sales and revenue operations about what's best practice. Everyone's got an opinion. I really don't believe those opinions, as I said, until I can actually go into it. So I know we're not talking necessarily about sales hiring today, but that's another one where people might say, hey, I love people who faced adversity when they were younger. I like people who were smart. I like people who... Athletes. Athletes, classic, <laughs> right? Like that was what I studied actually. And is that true or not? Like I now have the data to answer those kinds of questions. But we did this in the revenue operations world across things like go to market strategy and sales compensation, all these things I was talking about earlier, sales process, customer success, and so on. So you can definitely dive into a few of those if you'd like. That'd be great. So I happen to have the study right here. You gave me a little preview, which I really appreciate. Hey, what might be some of the findings that you might have been surprised about or would have been really good nuggets, especially as companies are working on their planning right now for the next fiscal year? Yeah, I think even the one thing, I wouldn't say it's a surprise. It's more like a confirmation. As I've looked at the companies I've worked for, but also the companies that I'm advising now, I would say like if I were to go into a company, what's the number one thing I would do? The number one thing I would do is I would set targets by separately for new by segment, obviously, but separately for new business and expansion. I'd say that so many companies set a single target and fail to separate the targets for new business and expansion. And then what often happens is they're doing great with net retention and the numbers are looking amazing. And then all of a sudden stuff starts to fall off the cliff and it falls off the cliff because they didn't have targets for new logo acquisition. They didn't notice that the thing that feeds your retention was starting to dry up and retention is not, you know, if you have a hundred and whatever, 40% net retention, that's cohort based, right? And as those cohorts age, they're not usually going to deliver that, right? That's going to start to trail off. So I, I think 
one of these findings in there was best performing companies are setting those separate targets for new and expansion. And then they're monitoring and reporting on the pipeline every week and often down to the individual seller level, not just at the segment level, but at the seller level and truly holding people accountable. I mean, if you think about it, that pipeline discipline solves so much in terms of not only hitting your number, but also the classic sales linearity problem, right? That all the business comes on the last day of the last week of the last month of the last quarter of the year. So just being disciplined about pipeline, about pipe gen and setting expectations there is critical. And again, it's not that that's not well known. It's just that there are other things, right? There's, as I said, we asked about 60 different best practices. And then there are some that like are good practices, but they don't distinguish top sales organizations from average sales organizations. So for instance, people talk, get really hot under the collar on say sales compensation plans. And we don't see a big difference in organizations' success, whether or not they say they have the traditional SaaS comp plan, 50-50 base bonus kind of split with accelerators and so on. And it may just be, it's not necessarily that that's good or bad. It's just that there's no distinction, right, between companies. And maybe everyone's on that plan. We could have a whole other conversation about commissionless compensation plans. I got opinions about that. (laughs) Not data, but opinions, because there just isn't enough data there. But yeah, I mean, so it's really where to focus. And and that's definitely one of the key areas is is in pipeline, in extreme pipeline discipline. Excellent. Earlier, we're talking a little bit about data relevance. And we had Udi from Gong on recently. And one of the things we talked about is, hey, you can't just look at data from a year ago and expect it to predict the future today based on what's going on today. Right. It might be it's a good data point, but hey, things are constantly changing. So like your point about not just checking these things once and kind of setting their metric, but doing it over and over again and really taking into account current market conditions, I think really affect predictability as well. Yeah. To that point, by the way, another one, a question I get all the time, not to jump too much here, but is what are the right KPIs to measure in sales, but even just in the whole SaaS world? also felt a little naked there that I sort of knew all the different KPIs that are out there, right? Efficiency rules and magic numbers and rule of 40 and all this and that. And But what I really was craving was benchmarks for all of that stuff. And not just benchmarks in general, but to your point, right? Things are evolving. How are those benchmarks changing over time? That was another one where, hey, this is, I looked, the kid in the candy store, right? At Sales Loft, it was all about all these interactions. Here at Insight, we have really deep financial and performance data for our portfolio companies that they submit every quarter. So I can go back and look at trends in different measures and I can segment that by, we look at ARR bands. So I can segment that for companies that are say under 10 million or over 100 million in ARR and look at how those things are different and see how those trend over time. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's a lot of folks out there talking about how there's been a big reset even in the rule of 40, right, which is adding your EBITDA plus your your growth rate is how you come up with that. And the rule of 40 says if you add those two things together and that the number is greater than 40%, that's goodness in the SaaS world. Well, it was the case, as a lot of folks have, have published stuff on, that the growth rate was really where the correlation was with valuation for a while. And now it's all about margin. It's all about EBITDA. Yeah, to watch those trends evolve over time and be able to report back to the revenue community as well as our obviously our portfolio companies on 
like where they should be relative to benchmark and, and more importantly, best practice, I think is critical. Excellent. All right. So there was two points in here that I just like to double tap on. So one of the go-to-market things that we talked about, top performing companies, their sellers can pitch a solution that's in a consistent manner that differentiates the value positioning versus the competition. Double tap on that for a little bit. What does that mean? Yeah, well, I mean, if you go into different companies, right, I have found that so often salespeople, if you ask 10 different salespeople about positioning the product, you get 10 different answers, right? So this is key is like, how do you actually get consistency on that? I listened to a ton of podcasts. I was listening to one yesterday to now defunct podcast. It stopped in January of this year, but it was quite good. And they were interviewing somebody who kind of grew up at Salesforce in the very, very early days. And he was talking about the fact that Salesforce would have everybody in the company stand and deliver to be certified on the pitch. And there was a scorecard in place, right, that rated your ability to faithfully deliver that pitch. And I don't know that they still do this, but at the time in the early days, they'd actually stack rank people on their scorecard performance on delivering the pitch. So there was relatively high stakes. So I don't know that you need to go to that extreme, but I love the how-to aspect of that, right? Is And when I listen to podcasts, I mean, hopefully I'm doing an okay job of giving you kind of actionable how-tos. I love that. I mean, I do think having people certify on the whiteboard or virtual whiteboard on positioning the company is critically important. Yeah, I can't stand it when I hear an organization tell me, hey, Carlos, we hire all senior salespeople. They know what they're doing. Really? (laughs) Yeah. If you had a sports team, would you just say go out there and play because you've done this before? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. By the way, the second part of that, yeah, we can talk about, I'd love to talk about like hiring senior salespeople too. We'll get to that in a second, maybe. But the second part of that statement, right? Our sellers can pitch our solution in a consistent manner that differentiates our value prop from the competition. I mean, one is the value prop, but then two, yeah, is the differentiation from the competition. And you were mentioning Gong. I'm sure Gong maybe has already published some stuff. I want to hunt it down, but like there is this debate out there about how you talk about the competition when you talk about the competition. I think there was a Gong study years ago and like folks should Google this and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I was pretty sure, I think if you, people who mentioned competition earlier, I think that's better, but I got to Google it and find out. And there's, with all this data, it's cause and effect. Did the competition come up because the prospect brought up the competition and they're further along in their purchase process? Like it's hard to know these things, but there's a debate about like how to handle the competition. I feel, and this is not data-driven, so I always clarify that, I mean, I feel the best way is to be reasonably knowledgeable about them and to not put them down like, hey, XYZ is a great solution for many people. What differentiates us? I can't speak to their differentiation. Like as a seller, I can't speak to their differentiation. That's their job. But I can tell you about us. And I learned that from one of the best sellers that I ever worked with, a guy named Tommy Tombridge. And I would listen to, I sat next to him in the, in our New York city office, just listening to him do that all the time. And it worked incredibly well for him. So that one's a sample size of one, but I do (laughs) think that that's, I mean, I think that's the right thing to do. And I would hear other sellers where like the sales enablement team would like feed them things that maybe that company didn't do from a feature or functionality point of view. And they would get burned from time to time, right? Because the competition develops these things. And there's this like long-term memory that people's memory is longer, right? So they, what you don't want to be is a seller who says, hey, the competition doesn't do X, Y, Z, but the competition does do X, Y, Z, and then you just blew your credibility. So I think it's a fool's errand to try to keep up with 
exactly every feature and functionality, you're not your competitor's sales engineer. That's not your job, right? So you sell your stuff. When I was working out in California, we had done basically a textbook of one of our top competitors. And it was great work. But here's the problem with it. As soon as you printed that thing out and killed that tree, it was old. It's constantly changing. So I love your approach of, hey, let me tell you why we're different or why people pick us. The way uh, me and Lisa and the rest of our kind of associates kind of position it in our training is, hey, you know, it's not that we want you to badmouth the competition because that's constantly moving. But when your prospect, your coach, maybe even champion looks you in the eye and says, hey, I really want to go with you. My boss seems to have an affinity with your competitor. Why would people pick you over them? Can you help me articulate that internally? I think that's a fair question that we should have an answer of why us. Yeah, yeah. I think arming them. I will say, I mean, it's a little bit of a cliche saying, and but I'll expand on it, which is you hear a lot, it's not what you sell, it's how you sell. I think that's increasingly become true simply because it's very hard to think of a company that does not have a, we, in this, it was in the semiconductor industry, so we used to call it pin for pin compatibility, like, because you could just plug that chip into a different socket and it works exactly the same. So, like, it's very hard to find a company that sells anything that does not have one, if not many, clones. I try to read kind of every decent, prominent sales book that comes out. And I just finished up The Jolt Effect, which is by the folks who did the Challenger sale. And they make a point about how you sell. And they basically say, the first half of the sales process is all about establishing value. And then the second half of the sales of the sales process is all about reducing risk, perceived risk for the buyer. And their point is all sellers, and I have observed this, are great at the value side. And when there's objections, they'll throw it like they reinforce the ROI and they reinforce the value. But I don't think all sellers are great at the risk side. And I've been more on the buying side than selling side for most of my career. And the risk is significant. Like it's not the thirty, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars, even million dollars, whatever, like that you spend on the platform. It's all the time and people and organizational capital that you're spending to get this stuff done. Like the last thing I bought before I moved over to this role was an AI-based support chatbot, basically, to help with ticket deflection, but to delight our customers at the end of the day. But it does both, right? You can have a win-win there. And I mean, I had to go to bat, right? Because there's six or seven people who have strong opinions about what we should do and what we should use. And if that failed, it's not the amount I spent on that product. It's the fact that I would push that decision. So I think the best sellers that I've encountered, right, make you comfortable, help you reduce the risk and build trust. And I think one of the, I'll just add on this, on that particular story, by the way, which I have told pieces of before, but I don't think I've ever told this piece, which is like, I'm salty enough and old enough to know that every implementation goes wrong, every single one of them. And I want to be able to look the seller in the eye and say, I know something's going to go wrong. And when this goes wrong, I want your promise. I want your word that you're going to make it right. And that to me was why I bought from one vendor versus another, right? Is because I believed in my heart of hearts that they were going to make things right. And sure enough, something went wrong like two months in. And sure enough, that company hopped on it and got it done. And it required some, we weren't not their biggest customer. But they hopped on it and it took engineering resources to fix what we needed to fix. And sure enough, within one to two weeks, they turned around and got it going again. So that, that to me is like what matters. 
I like to ask clients, if, hey, project goes well, we deliver the value, would you be willing to be a personal reference? Of course, they say yes. Then I go, okay, between now and then, something's going to go sideways. You got to promise me you're going to come back to me and allow me to try to fix it. Because that's what's going to make the difference for you being a raving fan into the future or not. And I just want the opportunity to address it if something does go wrong. So I just kind of try to set that tone early on. And because I think about if I was the buyer, that's what I'd want, right? That's what I'd want someone that's going to step up. All right, I got one more here. I'm sucking up all the time. Can I add one thing in there? I'm sorry, I got to throw this in, which is I was actually talking about this concept with a close friend of mine. His name is Ralph Flamini. And he's a friend and mentor. And again, since I'm a fraud, he's a true sales leader. And I asked him about this. He said, absolutely. He said he coaches his reps to actually share the distribution of implementation time. They can say like, hey, our median distribution is whatever, five months. We've had some that are two months. We have some that were 18 months. And then he coaches the reps to basically say, hey, this is what the circumstances were when it went fast. And this is what the circumstances were when it went slow. So I just think that honesty and transparency is incredibly important. He even tells them to share what their percentage of failed implementations are. So anyway, I just think that put dotting the putting the period or crossing the T, whatever the expression is on that, it's like the more transparency that you have on post-sale experience, I think the more trust you're going to build, the more likely you are to get the sale. I know you like books. So if you read Todd Capone's The Transparent Sale? Of course. Yeah. And he wrote a new one called The Transparent Leader as well. I read them both. He's a good friend. We love him to death. So it just made me think about that. All right. One other little tidbit from your research, and there were a lot of them in there, but this one's kind of near and near to our heart. Sales leaders monitor performance and pipeline generation and provide, this is the part that I really like, the coaching and support to ensure ongoing success. Can we double tap on that a little bit? Yeah. And I realized when I formulated some of these best practices that I, I violated a, a fundamental principle of survey design, which is you're really only supposed to ask one thing at a time. So this one needs to be broken up a little bit already. So we already talked a bit about monitoring rep performance and pipe gen. And that can be, I think, in three facets, getting it, doing another book, Cracking the Sales Management Code, right? Jason Jordan and Michelle Vizana, right? They talk about, it's they use slightly different language, but to me, it's activity, effectiveness, and results. So I, I think measures in each one of those areas is critical. But on the coaching and support on deals, it's another thing I've observed in the companies I've worked for and even the companies that we work with is they don't really have a disciplined process for deal inspection, right? Other people call these qualification frameworks. Like I also call them qualification frameworks, but I really call them deal health inspection. So what I've found is a lot of sales leaders, they came up through the ranks, they do what their boss did. And if their boss happened to probe deeply on champions, and they probe deeply on champions. And if their boss happened to probe deeply on whatever next steps, and that's what they do, right? But I've found the best sales leaders are super disciplined about making sure that they're asking kind of every facet of that deal health framework. So if you're an SMB, that's probably BANT or variations. Like I don't really care what order you put the letters in, BANT, ANIM, all that stuff. It's all the same to me. And then if you, you can blow out BANT into something with more pieces like Medic or MedPick, and right, you just have to make sure that as, as when you're doing deal health, you are looking at all of the facets, not just one. Because when I've asked reps about deals that got away of the deals they lost, it's always something a little different, but it's always one of those things. Like they didn't know who the economic buyer was. They didn't get to power, right? Or they didn't establish sufficient need or ROI, or they didn't understand who the competition was. Like it's always one of those things. 
So I think that's the key with great sales managers who are coaching their reps is, is to just really hold those reps accountable to deep, deep, deep deal inspection. If you're doing SMB transactional stuff, right, that's more about the pipeline side. But if you're doing more enterprise stuff, and just to level that up one further is like, I thought, okay, it's like Bant for SMB and Medic for enterprise. But I had one of our leaders at a portfolio company say, hey, they do $10 million plus deals. And they said they take it to yet another level and they sprinkle a little bit of, I think it's Miller-Hyman framework there with the economic buyer, user buyer, and so on. So what they do is they say, hey, in each deal, we know that there's going to be these five critical roles, right? Maybe it's the CEO, the CTO, the CSO, whatever, pick, pick your six roles. And they know that each one of those people is going to have to sign off. And so throughout the sales process, they define what needs to happen from an exit criteria on stage by stage, not just in general, but actually with the specific things that need to get accomplished with each of those identified individuals within the function. So you can get, you know, I don't think you need to do that, right? You don't need to do that for, in the transactional world, but you definitely need to do that when you're doing a $10 million deal. And there's shades of gray in between. Jeremy, we're going to have to coach you offline on the, because I got something a little bit better for you. Your survey talks about consistency. Instead of doing BANT for SMB and maybe Medic for some of your enterprise, if only you had this value selling framework that you can use for all of them across the board. And just to put a little twist into it, because today, hey, it's not only about nobody wants to be sold. These millennials and Gen Zers don't like to be closed. So if you're, what if your questions around your deal inspection are really from a customer's perspective? In other words, kind of aligning to their buyer's journey. You mentioned the fact that you're a great buyer. Hey, what have we talked about the sales cycle from your perspective? Why are you going to do it? Why are you going to do it now? Why you would do it with us, which is one of the questions we talked about earlier. How you would justify it because there is a cost and risk to it. So it's not just about the money. You mentioned it earlier. It's also about the risk. Who needs to get involved, which is that power piece you mentioned. But then wrap it all around with a great mutual success plan. Outline this for it. Make it easier for them in writing so they can even drive it internally. So. I didn't mean this to make it a value-selling commercial. No, I love it, actually. In fact, well, you see my bookcase behind me. Uh, usually I have some sort of a background on, but I got Julie Thomas's book back there, and you just gave me the perfect, what is it, the QP? Is it Qualified Prospect Formula? Qualified Prospect Formula. Yeah, yeah, I love it. She's doing a rewrite, so there's a new one coming out. Sweet. And I mean, from that, by the way, one of my biggest takeaways is, right, is the plan piece, right? Yeah. The mutual success plan piece, so incredibly critical, so underutilized, even in enterprise selling, right? That the best sellers absolutely use some form of a mutual plan. And that can be simple. It can just be a PowerPoint slide, right? With five or six actions on it, or it can be an entire project plan for those more complex deals. So yeah. And that's where I learned it from Julie directly because I spent 16 years of my career at Gartner and that was our foundational sales methodology. Amazing. She'll be glad to hear it. <laughs> I, I hope she listens to the podcast. I know she does, actually. <laughs> so, Jeremy, just to shift gears just a little bit, because we have to keep an eye on time, of course. Unfortunately, we haven't gotten to that three-hour podcast milestone just yet, though it seems like we'll call you as a guest when we do. <laughs> <laughs> I could probably do. I see coffee and maybe food. Right. Yes. We would make sure we incorporated those things. I want to actually, there are coffee for closers. Yes. Best mug ever. To step back in time just a little bit, you mentioned it briefly that you were with Sales Loft for four years, you mentioned. So 
I actually started following you, I think, around that time. And it was partially because you were sharing for free on LinkedIn some of these amazing data points that you got to pull from that massive data set that you mentioned. And you also took time during the pandemic to code some free resources for prospectors out there to help give them scorecards that would help them to improve and be able to achieve some of the results with that data-driven background. And I thought that was just incredible and generous of you. It's no secret. My background and my passion lies in prospecting and SDRs and prospectors. I think that it's a very noble job. So I have to ask, you seem like you have a soft spot, particularly for helping prospectors to do what they do better. Is that a passion based on being prospected too poorly for so long? (laughs) Or is it something that you came across just working with sales off to the nature of their business? I mean, I have empathy for humans, I guess. And I think prospecting is an incredibly difficult job and definitely leads to, as I said, this new logo acquisition leads to success or failure, whether you're an individual, an SDR, or even an AE. I had a conversation with someone earlier who's like, AEs need to know that they need to self-prospect. They're not going to make their number on the back of like SDR meetings alone in most circumstances, right? So in some ways, the prospecting stuff is almost easier I think opportunity management is so complicated because every organization's sales process, although they might have more or less the same five-ish stages, it's not linear, right? And it's really hard to codify. I think there's also very little data. And now there's increasingly more data, right, from the conversation intelligence people out there who are recording and synthesizing this stuff. But until conversation intelligence started recording everything and it started to analyze things, it was just a big black box mystery, right, of what was out there. So yeah, to me, it was much more accessible. Makes sense. So I have to ask, knowing, having talked a lot about data in this episode, and then also we touched on some of this as well, but being a very data-driven person yourself, where does it cross over into the humanity? Like, why can't robots just do our jobs? I mean, to that point, I'll tie it together with prospecting. There's probably so many ways to answer that. But to tie it with prospecting, it is the techniques that work that get a positive reply are ones that I believe trigger reciprocity, right? At in some fundamental level. So it's I took the time to research and think about you, and therefore you may subconsciously recognize that, appreciate that, and reply. And as soon as machines are able to do things, quote unquote, at scale, it takes away the power of that technique. So to be specific about this, right in the early days. If you put someone's first name in a subject line, it was incredibly powerful because you had to physically type that in. And then as soon as dynamic tags came along, that became an ignore and stopped working and no longer became effective. And I think even, right, there was this sort of trend. It was happening just sort of right before COVID and into COVID of like, I'm going to go on your LinkedIn profile and I'm going to find some little factoid and I'm going to reference that factoid. And like that was very powerful for a while. And then that stopped working because a bunch of companies came along that were able to extract those little snippets from LinkedIn and drop them in. So I think this humanity matters in at least in enterprise selling, right? I can't remember where I read some research on, and it makes sense, is that like the threshold for human and machine selling just continues to go up in terms of average selling price. Like I don't need a human, what did I last order? oh, my Kindle broke, I had to order a new Kindle, right? So I don't need a human to sell me a Kindle. But like, I, you know, after 20 years of living in our home, I, we had to replace the bricks outside. I kind of needed a human 
in that particular case. It was a more expensive purchase than a Kindle, right? So I think there is that trust that machines, at least above a certain threshold, don't of, of average selling prices can't really fulfill. All right. So one of the things that me and Lisa and some of our other partners always talk about is our biggest lessons learned are usually from our mistakes or missteps. So Jeremy, what might be one of those missteps in your career that really enlightened you and said, hey, here's something to avoid or an important lesson that I learned because of that situation? Yeah, I'll give you, I mean, so many, but I'll give you two. I'll give you one like academic mistake because I'm a constant student. I was even studying, picked up a degree during COVID. But when I went to business school, my single worst class was marketing. I was doing very well on everything else other than marketing. And I was on a group project and we utterly failed and basically took down my performance and my team's performance for the class. And like that one, it's interesting that the things that I'm now, I feel like I'm now very strong at are things I failed at earlier in life. And like, that's one of them. Another one is public speaking. I was a terrified, socially anxious person, had to spend 10 years in Toastmasters to learn how to speak in a semi-dynamic way. I mean, I don't think you can ever get the engineer, data scientist out of me, but I took 10 years of Toastmasters for me to, to shed that anxiety and be a little bit more articulate. And now I feel like I can communicate. So anyway, that was one of them. I think then from a career misstep point of view, I spent 16 years at one company, which I think was a, an amazing choice. It was not always easy. I was definitely had moments of extreme stress and doubt during that journey. But that 16 years, I think, was incredibly powerful for me. So the longevity in a company, I think, matters. I then did like two or three hops before I made it to Sales Loft. And that hopping, I had a framework for what I was looking for, which I stole from yet another book that Cal Newport wrote called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And it basically says, do stay in your job, lean in to your job, as long as the following is true, as long as you're learning and growing. These are all subjective. There's meaning in the work. And it's not toxic to you mentally or physically. And I added a fourth one, which is I really crave operational discipline. So I was hopping around, like trying to find places that satisfied all four. And I think the mistake that I made in one or two instances was maybe two mistakes. One was not, I should have demanded and investigated even more deeply and had zero compromise that all four of those were true. The missteps I've made is when one of those four things is not true. So I think that's one mistake. I think the other one is like jumping for title or perceived responsibility or pay. Like my experience is it all works out one way or the other in the end. And as long as you live below your means, as I've strived to do throughout my life, it's going to be okay. And if I had maybe, I'm throwing so much at you, but if I had one more, it's most people I think become less risk averse as they get older. I've become more risk averse. I think I was way too risk averse probably when I was earlier in my career. It's sort of a general mistake, but I think being comfortable with risk because worst case, you get fired and you go get another job. I really thought it was like, worst case, I get fired and it's the end. of It's like the end. <laughs> I didn't appreciate the value of risk. Yeah, it's a lot easier to recover at 35 than it is at 55. True, yes, true. So I'm with you. I think I didn't take a lot of risk early on either. I think the kid of two immigrants, they kind of beat it over my head. You're happy to have a job. Yes, yes. <laughs> I probably should have jumped a little bit more sometimes. But then again, hey, I learned along the way. And maybe I'm just a slow learner. I'm a late bloomer. I would think I was a late bloomer too. But yeah, if those 
going back to, I think that what I said originally is like, know your three or four things. I think that those fundamental three that Cal Newport references, and then maybe find the fourth that matters to you. And then just absolutely hold yourself to those is the best advice I have for avoiding mistakes in your career. That's fantastic advice. I'm always shocked at how little research some candidates do. And when you start to coach and mentor people throughout their careers, it's like research, understand the leadership team, understand their values, make sure they align to yours. Like it should be something that's just standard and yet so few people do it. So I think that's great advice. I look up on LinkedIn, recent former employees. Ooh, yeah. And I reach out to those people because that's the best. Nice. Those are the best people. That's smart. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Well, Jeremy, we could talk all day, as we mentioned before. So I'm going to pivot to our last few questions that we ask every guest that joins us for the show. And the first, taking us a little bit back to prospecting again, as a revenue executive and now somebody who's working with a portfolio companies and advising them, you are constantly prospected too, as I can imagine. If someone does not have the warm introduction, the referral, something like that, it's a true cold reach out. What is an element that it has to have that will A, inspire your attention, you'll read it, but B, might even get you to respond. The read it part is it has to be insanely short because I just don't have the time and I recognize and plain text. Like it has to look like a regular email. If it has anything that's not normal, plain text, it's gone, right? And then the other thing is truly relevance. I don't so much care that it's personalized. I really care that it's relevant to what I'm doing in the moment. And they don't, the prospector just has no control over that. It just needs to be something super relevant in the moment, right? Like when I was looking at support chatbot solutions, if you prospected me on, I don't know, forecasting software, I'm going to ignore you at that moment because I didn't need that right then and there. But just like consistency of prospecting. I'd add one more thing, which is like, it's the hard stuff, right? That gets the responses. So like if someone were to offer me the opportunity to talk with a peer, a true peer of mine, I would take that, right? If someone were to offer me, like I get sometimes where they say, we're doing an event for like 30 people. I don't want to go to an event for 30 people anymore. If you're doing an event for 10 at a nice restaurant, yeah, maybe that makes me a little bit of food snob or whatever. <laughs> but I mean, it's not, it's less about the food and more the fact that I want to be able to have deep conversation with individuals and not just be like talked at in, with a panel up front or something like that. From a booth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. You've earned it. <laughs> like, over to you, Carlos, for our second question there. You got it. So, all right. So our last question is this acceleration insights. And it's really simply put, what's that? And you've shared a lot of great insights, Jeremy. But what's that one piece of advice that you'd like to give our listeners that help them achieve their own goals and achieve their own success? I guess I'll, you know, come back to the beginning, which is it's to me, it's learning. It's everything. There's a lot that stays the same. You gotta learn what those things are. And there's a lot that's constantly changing every day. So I just think be a constant learner and not just in the world of sales domain. I think that's it's an and learn everything you can about sales, but like learn other stuff too, whether it's programming or music or art or just be an interesting human because I think that helps you build trust and rapport, but it just makes your life and the lives of others more fruitful in the process. Excellent. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jeremy. If a listener is interested in getting in touch with you about any of these topics or to hire you as a speaker or anything like that, what's your preferred method of communication? I'm unhirable, but my preferred method of communication is LinkedIn. Just drop me a connection request and I respond. Actually, I'm pretty addicted, so I'm hyper responsive <laughs> if you have a legit question. 
Fantastic. Well, Jeremy, cannot thank you enough for your time today. We know how valuable it is and we really appreciate it. It's been great having you on the show. My pleasure. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode. Please check us out at www.b2brevexec.com. Share this episode with your friends, your family, your kids, your dogs, get them off the screens for a little while. And if you like what you hear, please do us a favor and throw us a five-star review on iTunes. For today, from myself and my podcast partner, Carlos Noche, we wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.